This morning we're continuing our our series on Renew. It's uh, an opportunity for us to look at our identity in Christ. Many of you are participating in small groups that are connected uh, to the curriculum and message in which we're hearing on Sunday morning. Um, we are this morning going to look at what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 6. You'll find that on a Pew Bible in front of you on page 1199, or you can follow along on the screen as I am going uh, to read. Before I read, just let me give you a context of what we're about to read. Uh, the letter to the Romans were a group of Christians in Rome that uh, Paul hoped to go see, and, and before he gets there, he begins to write to them about the one thing that they have in common, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That message, that news that is good because of what Jesus Christ had done for us. But he begins by telling them what we have in common apart from Christ. That is that what defines humanity apart from Jesus is that all men fall short of the glory of God because they're sinners. That is, we are unacceptable to God because of sin. And that now defines what it means to be human. And because of that, he says we're all without excuse, whether we're religious or unreligious. And then he begins in chapter 4 with a therefore by describing how we can be made acceptable again uh, to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he calls that justification, being made or declared right with God because someone lived a life that we could not live and to die a death that we could not die. And that person who was our substitute, the one who did that for us, was his own son, Jesus, who was the Messiah, who lived historically on earth who obeyed all the commands perfectly, lived a complete holy life, and was crucified by the very people who he came to save. And it was because of his death, his life and his death, we are acceptable to God again. And the context of Romans 6 is he recognizes that that message, saved by grace on the account of of someone else's actions might lead us to some wrong conclusions. So here, that good news. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into death, his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Again, we are looking at our identity in Christ. And again, one of the concerns is if we say we have been redefined as acceptable by God by this gospel of what Christ has done for us, all by grace, received by faith, there are three errors that often uh, plague that teaching. What I mean by that is the hearers who hear that free grace is how we are redefined as acceptable tend to hear that but misunderstand it in three ways. One can be called a perfectionism. This idea that when you become a Christian, when God saves you, he makes you unable to sin and therefore you don't sin. Literally... There are hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters all over this world that believe that. That the gospel of free grace also means that you cannot sin. Now, there's a sister to that one that is a, a, a small group. Well, that's actually a large group, probably larger than perfectionism the way I just described it. And that is we Christians who don't believe in perfectionism as I described it as one who never sins, we can communicate that without ever saying that's a doctrine I believe in. That is, if the world... If fellow Christians never see us repent, one conclusion they may draw erroneously is that we think we don't sin. And then they go out and propagate that piece of information. And then people in the world think that Christians don't sin or at least don't sin like them. That's not true. But you can see how that progression, that slippery slope happens. All because repentance is not a daily thing we do. And it's not something we do in front of other people. Secondly, that misunderstanding of free grace 
is this idea that God sent his son to die for you, but there's limitations to how much God can forgive through the death of Christ. That is, there's a line that if you cross that line, there's no more grace for you. It dries up. Nobody goes around and says there's a, where the line is, but I was just talking to somebody this week and said, can, can I do something that finally outstrips or out distance free grace? And you can see how that might happen because if we don't help one another as we struggle with sin, you can think that I'm never forgiven for this. It's just beyond God's comprehension of how bad I am. Third, this idea of grace being free, this final idea is, won't people take sin seriously if you teach free grace? If you keep talking about the grace the way you talk about grace here at EP, won't people conclude that sin's not all that serious or important. I would argue that free grace makes more of sin than no grace. And so what we have this morning is Paul taking a series of rhetorical questions and teaching us on how free grace how this idea of what Christ has done for us to make us acceptable to God and help us understand the continued struggle with sin for the Christian. You see, if we've communicated to you and you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're a young believer, but you get the impression that we've got it all together, then we have failed to communicate to you reality. And we're sorry for that. Because if we've taught you that, it is a false gospel. Paul starts off in verse 1 and says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's addressing a probable and understandable but wrong conclusion about the gospel. Paul had just summarized, Paul will do this from time to time in his letters. He will, in a statement, uh, summarize the gospel or reduce it down to a statement. And he just had done that in chapter 5. And that's why he asked that question in verse 1. Because of something he just had written that he knew that once it got out there, some might misunderstand what he had said. And this is what he said in chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what Paul is saying in that statement. He is saying because Adam represented all humanity, 
that all humanity comes and draws its lineage, its existence from Adam. What happened to Adam, what Adam did, colored and defined all men, all humanity. That's called our representative. And you might argue that's not fair that one man or one person somehow taints or stains all of humanity. Here's the deal, though. Two things. One is, even if we didn't blame Adam to be our representative, all on our own, we prove on a daily basis that we have fallen. That is, you don't need to look to Adam as your representative to prove that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, if you have a problem, if I have a problem with my union with Adam, that Adam is my representative of humanity, then you're going to have a problem with Christ being your representative and what he did colors and changes who you are. That is the dichotomy that Paul is setting up. Through one man, all men become sinners. So that when one man, Jesus, through his obedience, which includes both his active obedience in every way for 33 years and his passive obedience being nailed to the cross, and that we have been assigned. If you have a problem with Adam as your representative, then you're going to have a problem with Christ being your representative, and that's going to leave you to be your own representative. But if this is true, and I I believe this is what Paul is teaching us, we've become acceptable to God through someone else's life. And that is grace that is received by faith. It is someone else's works that are accounted or imputed or given to us. Therefore, it is first to last grace. And it is first to last faith. That's what Paul writes at the very beginning of this letter. He says, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in this gospel of righteousness from God is being revealed first to last. And the righteous live by faith. I think that's an important part as we understand this, that it's by grace and it's through faith. Even the faith to believe this gospel is an act of grace. How do we know that? Paul writes extensively about that in the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Then he goes on and says, it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the faith. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. 
This can be dangerous grace. I say dangerous grace because people have gotten the wrong idea about grace. If we teach we are made acceptable to God, forgiven completely by grace through faith, won't people think continuing in sin is no big deal? Aren't you grace people opening the door to rampant sinning? Or at least not taking sin seriously. So I, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher of the 20th century, said this, If you preach free grace, then you will be accused of antinomianism. What he means by antinomianism, which means against the law. That is, if you're for grace, then you will ignore the law. You'll be accused of that, not that you will be, but that's what you'll be accused of. But this is Paul's question, isn't it? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? How does he answer that question? You see it in verse 2? Short answer, may it never be. By no means. No way. That's impossible. Why not? How can we, this is verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The short answer to that is we can't. Paul's question is a rhetorical one. That is, the question bears the answer. The question is the statement. People who have been redefined as acceptable to God because of the finished work of Christ cannot continue to live in sin. If Jesus has won our acceptance by his obedience, and if it is all of grace through faith, then we are not free to continue to live in sin. Why? Verse 2 goes on, because if you died to sin, you cannot go on living in it. How have we died to sin? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? Now, before we try to understand that, we have to understand the word that has been misunderstood for almost 2,000 years, but specifically since the Second Great Awakening, middle of the 1800s. And that is that somehow baptism is a communication by me about me to the world. That in my baptism, I am communicating in some way what God is doing inside me to everyone who is hearing or watching or understands. That view of baptism is only 150 years old. Before the Second Great Awakening, no one believed that of baptism, including Baptists. You can look at the London Confession, and they don't even understand baptism that way. Baptism is not a picture of what I testify. Baptism has always been what God is testifying. It is a picture of our union with Christ. 
Now, we don't use the word union very often. Nobody goes to a fellowship dinner or a picnic, church picnic and say, how's your union with Christ going? But we do talk about your relationship with Christ. We do talk about your position with Christ. And all of that is in and around this idea of your union with Christ. Because he is your representative, what happened to him is accounted to you. And what you did was accounted to him. That is our union. And therefore, you died when Christ died. Well, what does that mean? I'm living. As a matter of fact, I wasn't even alive then. How can I die when he died 2,000 years ago? That is, your old identification, your old way of living, your old nature died on the cross. That was what was accredited, imputed to Jesus without you even being alive. Because God is where? God is at the beginning of time. God is at the end of time and every point in between. Therefore, God could see you before you were ever in your mother's womb. And because that, he can see all the things that you would ever do, both good and not good, that which is uh, righteous and unrighteous, and Christ died for it. You were already written upon God's heart before you even had a heart. You have been given a new identification and that new way of living in light of this new identity. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That is, my union with Christ allowed me, my old nature, my old self, my old identification to die when Jesus died on the cross. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, Paul is saying, become in practice who you already are in Christ. We really struggle with our identification as resurrection Christians. That is, we tend to identify with Jesus' death because we know that's how our sins are paid. And so in a lot of ways, we, we are forgiven Christians. And many of us look at the idea of Christ's obedience in life And so we know that we are righteous in Christ. But one place we struggle, and Paul is emphasizing here in chapter 6, is that also we were raised in Christ to a new life. And therefore, the resurrection isn't just a future benefit of being a Christian. That is, somewhere in the future, hopefully not tomorrow or today, but in the future, when we die, we will be raised from the dead. That's how we tend to look at the resurrection and Jesus as the first fruits of that resurrection. But Paul is teaching here that it has a whole nother effect, and that's in the present. That not only will we one day be resurrected, that's the end of our resurrected life, not the beginning. We are in 
the middle of our resurrected life, this new life in Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead, you have been raised to this new life now in the present. That's how Paul can say Christians who have experienced this union with Christ have the have the power, not not your own efforts, but the power in you to change. I mean, it would be horrible that if all Jesus did was tell you that one day in the way distant future you can change, but until then, just do the best you can and you can never change. No, he's not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying you can change now, not because now that you're a Christian, you are a better human. He's saying there's a resurrection power in you that gives you the power to change. And Paul will say in Ephesians that that resurrection power was the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. If in you right now, as you sit right there listening to me, have the resurrection power and you've got a list of things that you would like to see in your life change, that power is in work in you right now, not in some future time. I think that's important because somehow we feel powerless in the face of our sin that nothing can be done that's not true galatians 2:20 i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me i now live by faith in the one who loved me and delivered himself upset for me. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, not only do I live in light of the death of Christ, but now the life I now live, I live in light of the resurrected Christ. One more question. What does it mean that all believers are united to Christ? If that's true, that we're united in his death and we're united in his, his resurrection, what does that mean? Look, look, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But what does that mean? We may need whole new categories. Because we don't have a good category for this. That his death has ongoing benefits for my life right now. His resurrection has ongoing benefits for my life right now, not just in the future. We need new categories for that. And that's why I'd like us to hold on to this idea of union, our union with Christ. What does that mean? What happens to him happens to us. That's what union with Christ means. What happened to Jesus has been counted by God as have happened to us. His death is applied to us now and is received through faith. And his resurrection is applied to us now and is also received through faith. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. My old identity was crucified with Christ. The old way of identifying myself has been 
killed. The old way of living in light of that identity has been crucified with Christ. But now I have been given this new life in Christ. This is why in verses 7 and 8 he says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are qualitatively different than you once were. Not, not just different in the sense of, I go to church now when I didn't used to. I tithe now and I didn't used to give. But you are qualitatively different because now you are acceptable to God. Why can't believers go on sinning? Why, why can't believers continue to live in sin? If Paul meant that once you become a Christian, you can't sin, then he wouldn't have used the words that he used. He did not say you can never sin. What he said was you cannot live in it. In verse 1, he says you can't continue in it. What, is, what does that mean? If you have been united with Christ... You will not, you will not want to continue. You will not seek to continue and to be identified by that sin. Verse 6 says, we're not slaves anymore. We're free. We don't have to sin. We choose to. That's Paul's point. It is possible, even probable, that Christians will have sinful attitudes and actions. But they will not be master over you because they no longer have power over you. And then what verse 14 says, for sin will not have dominion over you since you were not under the law, but under grace. Jesus came to not only free us from the penalty of sin, we get that, we, we get the cross, but he's also came to free us from the power of sin. What Paul is saying is that you can change. You don't have to be identified by sin. If there is no ongoing struggle with sin, why would Paul give us three commands in the same passage? In verse 11, he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. In verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Ultimately, Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. And then we will not be able to sin. But until then, we don't have to sin, but we choose to sin. And we have the power to not let sin be our masters. But until then, until we recognize it, until we begin to see that, we will continue to struggle with sin. But even if we struggle with sin, sin will not identify us again. Our union with Christ means Jesus is our new identity. He defines our new life. That's why Paul will say in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it 
or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We now seek an experience where we who have been made righteous, acceptable, now bring our lives into line with that reality. But from time to time, we won't feel like it. Me too. Who, who always feels like wrestling with their sin and repenting? You know, many of us struggle with all kinds of things. Like, you can't imagine how anxiety is for me and how every day is an anxious day for me. And one of my very favorite verses is, do, uh, do not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, let your quest be made known to God. And the peace of God, let me tell you two things that piece of scripture does not say. It doesn't say what we parents often do to our children when we want them to cease to do bad things. Don't do that. Don't do that as if there's any power in the law. There is a power in the law. Paul says, the law kills me all day long. But Paul is not giving us in Philippians 4 this idea of, I'm just going to tell you, don't do it. Say no to drugs and you won't do drugs. That is like telling a kid, you can eat all the fruit and vegetables you want, but stay away from the cookie jar. What do you think he's going to do? That's not what Paul is getting at in that passage. Nor is he saying, if you get your prior life right, you're going to stop being an anxious person. That the way in which to deal with anxiety is to get your prayer life right. That turns prayer into magic. And it's not magic. But what that verse gets at is who you're praying to. The key to prayer is not the words you say. It is the theology of who you pray to. If your God loves you, and cares for you, and you know he knows your struggle, you pray differently than if you think he has drawn a line and you're starting to get close. Or you believe that your life somehow doesn't reflect what he wants best and you feel horrible. And that he's some angry God about to zap you. But if you think he's your loving God, who cares for you and knows your struggle, you will pray differently to him about your anxiety. That's why you get shalom, the peace of God, is because he knows your struggle and he knows what you need. Way more than your OCD attempts to control everything around you. Therefore, how we feel is important, but cannot be dictatorial on how we respond. Feelings follow belief. They don't shape our beliefs. Let's pray.
Father, I, of all the people in the room who need to understand this passage, it's me. To know that you're not looking for perfectionism because you haven't yet moved, removed the presence of sin. But at the very same time, repentance needs to be part of my daily life so that I would know and everyone else would know that it's a struggle and that there's a power at work to change me and give hope to anyone else that they can change too by the same resurrection power that is in us. We thank you that Jesus lived the life we could not live and died the death we could not die in order to make us new, not to make us good, but in order to identify us the same way you identify him, beloved in whom I am well pleased. I pray that we grow in grace so that that we may not be enslaved again to sin, that we might find the freedom that you have given us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.